Welcome to season two of Sorting Pen, the California Cattlemen's podcast. Every day, the California Cattlemen's Association is sorting through the issues impacting California's ranching families and producers. To communicate those issues, discuss solutions, and keep ranchers current on the hot topics, CCA leadership developed this podcast. Happy fall, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Sorting Pen, the California Cattlemen podcast. Today, I'm going to just jump right into it because on the line right now, we have with us Ethan Lane, who is the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Vice President of Government Affairs, and he happens to be joining us all the way from across the pond. So, Ethan, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah, of course. You're our first guest that's recorded internationally. So thanks for um, <laughs> checking that off the box. Speaking of that, what are you doing in the UK? So uh, we're over here talking trade. You know, this is something that we've been investing in for the last couple of years. Following the Brexit, British exit from the European Union a few years back, uh, 2016, I guess now, um, we started formulating a strategy for trying to establish more trade access to the UK with the intent of really kind of using that as a, as a toehold into Europe. For, I know a lot of producers that are following this, I know they already know this, but a lot of the technologies that we use in the U.S. supply chain are, are, are pretty frowned upon here in larger sort of Europe and the U.K., in particular things like uh, ear implants. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about how we produce cattle and beef in the United States. In particular, a lot of the folks over here are under the impression that our entire system is feedlot-based rather than a finishing process at the end of our production system. Talking through some of those things, helping to educate, looking for opportunities uh, for conventionally raised U.S. beef to reach uh, consumers over here, which I can tell you, sitting here at 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday night, uh, having just come from a steakhouse with our friends from, uh, from Farm Bureau, if you put U.S. beef on a menu over here, people order it immediately. It is incredibly uh, popular. The taste is unlike anything that we've seen over here. This week, we've been in Paris, we've been in Brussels with the European Union, and now we're in London. You simply cannot get a steak over here that rivals the average steak we get anywhere in the U.S. as far as quality and taste. So there's a tremendous opportunity here for, for that to be on menus alongside some of the product that we're seeing from, uh, from European producers. Um, so a lot of that is just laying the groundwork, having those conversations and educating about both the misconceptions about U.S. beef and some of the opportunities uh, for us entering that market. Yeah, those opportunities are definitely a positive and the demand for U.S. beef. If nothing else, if you don't take anything else away from the podcast positive today, take that away that people want our beef. <laughs> Every the second we enter a market, we dominate it. And then that's just a fact. Wherever we've been in Europe, wherever we've been in Asia, the second we enter that market, people say, well, wow, I didn't realize that this was possible with beef. I definitely want more of that. It, it's, it's truly amazing. But we can jump Absolutely. right into what we want to chat about today, which is the midterm elections. For those of you who don't know, Ethan is also in CBA's head of the D.C. office. He previously ran the Public Lands Council. So he got his fair share of work and time with us in the West, for sure. With the midterm election coming up just days from now, I have to imagine there's like plenty going on back in D.C. for you. Specifically, we wanted to chat about that, chat about how you strategize for the election, maybe the outcomes. Maybe let's start with getting an understanding of how much does an election year impact the work that gets done on Capitol Hill and your staff's priorities? The election cycle is is really kind of a metronome for those of you that took music lessons growing up for the entire two-year cycle 
around a Congress. You know, every Congress is two years. We're in the 117th Congress now. It will wrap up at the end of this year. Uh, and a new one will start in January with this newly elected slate that's going to the polls here in the next two weeks. And we start really on day one of those new Congresses, building relationships, assessing how much or what degree members of Congress are are supportive of the U.S. beef industry and cattle industry, using the political action committee as a tool to support those members that are going to bat for the U.S. industry, and quite frankly, to freeze out those members that aren't, support their opponents, look for challengers, back those challengers. NCBA's political action committee is unique because we will get involved in primaries, which not all political action committees will. A lot of political action committees, I know your, your, your listeners will be shocked to hear this, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear right in Washington and, and a little bit less fine than you would hope for. Uh, they don't want to make anybody mad. Uh, certainly, we're here to, to make friends. We're here to build relationships, but we're here to, to get our point across to you. So sometimes that means involving ourselves in primaries, especially where we think there's a real pivotal role for us to play. But that process really starts on day one of the new Congress. And throughout the year, we're looking for those opportunities to build dialogue with, with members of Congress to support through fundraisers and things like that, members that we know have our back. And this is where all of that kind of comes together. Here at the end of the cycle, we have spent months talking to candidates that are running for offices, open congressional seats, challengers to existing sitting members, and looking at those polls for those 435 races across the country uh, to kind of get a good sense, not just of, gosh, are Republicans going to win or are Democrats going to win? We're going a lot deeper than that, and we're looking at the dynamics in those individual races. What are the ag state members going to look like versus suburban members or urban members? Particularly going into a year like this with a farm bill, that becomes critically, critically important because we really get a better sense that way of, of what are the constituents for these members going to be telling them going into what we know are going to be pivotal discussions, particularly for the West, right? In the last Farm Bill, Public Lands Council, as I was running it at the time, was the only ag organization to put out a press release critical of the Farm Bill. I can tell you I got a lot of phone calls from yeah. uh, from the committee and elsewhere, you know, angry about that. And I, you, you were at California Cattlemen when that happened, and Katie, and I, I know you you heard some of that as well. But, you know, it's important that we that we put those markers out there. We're going back into that process now. So, you know, looking at what kind of Congress we're going to have to deal with becomes a really important priority for us. This Congress that's coming in here in the next two weeks, we know we're going to see elections across the country. We know a few things that are kind of not in dispute, right? We know that it's a midterm where one party has control of all of Washington. Throughout history, that tells us that you're going to see a big pickup for the minority party, the Republican Party in this case, in that midterm election. You know that with that really narrow majority that Democrats hold in the House of Representatives, it is incredibly likely that they're going to lose control of the House of Representatives in this election cycle. Uh, so we, we can pretty much guarantee that with, with some sort of majority, we're going to see a, a Republican speakership, most likely Kevin McCarthy from California, taking control of the U.S. House of Representatives. The Senate is far foggier than that. And, and a lot of that is the difference between congressional district level elections and statewide elections. And I'm a big believer in the idea that statewide elections don't tend to really mirror much of anything other than the politics in that particular state. So senatorial races, gubernatorial races tend to be a little bit of an outlier. And that's holding true in this cycle, too. You know, we're watching races like the Pennsylvania Senate, senatorial race. Clearly, everybody in the country is watching that race. 
uh, between John Fetterman, who suffered from a stroke a few months back, has been uh, largely incoherent different times from, from then on, um, versus Dr. Uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, the Republican candidate. That's been a really interesting race to watch. We're watching the race between Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia um, and former uh, NFL football player Herschel Walker um, on the Republican side. You know, there are some pivotal races like that that, that really will determine the balance of power in that currently 50-50 split U.S. Senate. And, and I'd love to tell you that I have some really you know, incisive insight on those races sitting yeah. here uh, a week and a half before the election. But, but really and truly, the information the data is all over the map on those races. We know that John Fetterman had a really poor debate performance a few days ago in his only, uh, in his only debate appearance. So the one big question, is he communicative? Can he convey ideas? was answered, and the answer to that is no, he cannot in a, in a, in a real serious way um, at this point. Whether or not that's enough to push Dr. Oz over the finish line in that race remains to be seen. I have a hard time um, seeing how it doesn't have an impact on what was already a really tight race. I think that's a fairly pivotal turn of events in that in that uh, debate. Sure. Um, but that's a lot of what we're watching, right? And, and then and then we're kind of getting a little more granular and looking into some of those individual races where we could see future champions for the cattle industry in particular uh, emerging. You know, we have uh, Kurt Schrader at Oregon lost his primary to a, a sort of perennial, super far left candidate in the J.D. McLeod Skinner in Oregon 5. She is running against a conservative candidate who really has proven herself to be pretty aggressive in campaigning against uh, uh, Jane Cloud Skinner. We think there's a possibility that that's a flip. We're watching Barb Kirkmeyer's race in Colorado uh, for that open seat, another Republican. Uh, she's a county commissioner right now, um, one that we've had into the office. Eli Crane in Arizona is running against John O'Halloran, the Democrat uh, in AZ1, my home district. You know, we're seeing races like that all across the country where you have viable candidates who have the funding in place, who are mounting the proper campaign and are, are poised to capitalize on the wave that we know is at least potentially there, right, just because of the math, right? And, and, and I say that as a Republican operative myself in my past before I was at NCBA, it's not because the Republicans have run some great campaign this cycle. They, they really they really you know, haven't necessarily run the world's greatest campaign. Sure. We've been a little bit concerned about them not pivoting quickly enough to what I would call a general election slate of talking points. Deep into the general election, we were hearing a lot of those candidates still echo what I would call primary season talking points that, you know, speaking to a Republican only audience. They've finally made that pivot. We've seen them, we've seen them make that shift largely. That's positive. But, you know, despite that, the math is really on their side to see some pickups there. So for them to pick up 10 seats, 15 seats, um, and have a fairly healthy margin in the House of Representatives, at least more of one than Democrats have now, is, is, is not out of the realm of possibility here in, in, in a week and a half on Election Day. Yeah, so I'm glad you've talked about how much NCBA has to make friends with people, I guess. You could say candidates right out of the gate. And I know in a recent column, NCBA CEO Colin Woodall talked about how you like to say you're in the friend making business. We're doing the same thing right now in California. Our legislature is going to have 35 new freshmen come in in 2023. So Billy and Kirk have been working nonstop to make relationships with those candidates and identify who's going to be the best. Are there any candidates that you're watching right now that might surprise people that you think could be a new ally for NCBA? Gosh, that's a great question. You know, I, I can think of I can think of a, a bunch that we've met with that are unlikely 
that are potential unlikely allies around the country. I'm always shocked by new members coming into Congress. And I, I, I can't help myself. I've been in Washington long enough. I have a hard time not comparing this cycle to the 2010 Tea Party wave. Okay. Because you have a lot of members coming in that, that are extremely idealistic, right? They, they're coming to Washington to change things. We're doing this in an environment where we have spent an extraordinary amount of money beyond the, the normal federal budgeting process in the last few years, you know, three or four trillion dollars in extra spending. And that is giving a lot of these candidates a really easy path because they can say, look, I'm tired of the, the extra government spending. I'm tired of the wasteful spending in Washington. I'm coming into Washington to, to really get, get a hold of things. That's going to be an easy line for them to kind of lean on uh, moving through this first at least year of yeah. this Congress without having to dive deep into issues. That's not a great turn of events for us. It doesn't mean that we're going to have people that are that are siding against us on issues, um, but it means that, the, that they're not going to have to do a lot of work, right? Because largely they're going to appeal to a large section of the electorate just by saying, you know, hey, we're cutting government spending. A bunch of people are going to be like, yeah, that's exactly what they should be doing. You know, get that done and don't do anything else. Yeah, that's going to work for them for a decent amount of time. But yeah, we're we're having good conversations with a lot of members that understand our industry. They're they're either from uh, the cattle industry or from kind of a rural adjacent background where they understand uh, the basic needs of, of of the cattle industry as far as like rural you know rural economics, and and so there's a lot of potential there. A lot of it is undeveloped. We're going to have to do a lot of work. We're going to have to work really hard hand in hand with Billy and Kirk, right? With our state affiliates around the country. And this is what NCDA does better than any other agricultural uh, organization in the country. We, we have a broad base of professionals around the country. And we work hand in hand, both at the state level and the federal level, to develop these members. To, to, to make sure that they are advocates for our industry, that they are thinking about our issues. That is not something that happens overnight. None of these folks come to Washington wired properly to just be advocates for the cattle industry. Yeah. That takes a tremendous amount of work. It takes effort. It takes years of text messages. Kirk and I have a text message that I'm going back 10 years, right? Talking or seven years, eight years, nine years, longer than I've been at NCBA. You know, when I was representing clients in, in California on ranching issues before I was at NCBA or PLC, you know, Kirk and I were working on on how to how to turn some of these members of Congress. Um, that's what it takes to get to get these folks to the right spot so that they're they're thinking about our issues properly, they're being responsive to what we're telling them that they need to be thinking about um, and getting them in the right spot. And and it, even after all that, every once in a while they're gonna disappoint us. And and you know, that's sure. where we need to come back in and re-educate and remind them, nope, you missed it on this one. Here's where you need to be next time. We get a fresh slate every two years. And, and that's exactly what we're going to be going into here. It's going to be really important for our members. It's going to be really important for everyone listening to this podcast when they get a chance to talk to these members of Congress, when they're in their district campaigning, talking about what they're doing, holding it on tables. It's going to be really important for them to remind them, look, there's Republican talking points and there's fiscal discipline and there's all those things. And that's great. But we need you to show up and deliver for the industry, too. And sometimes that means voting for a farm bill that's better than the alternative, right? Or that could be that could be way worse if we let it go too long. Sometimes that means shutting down bad forest management policy. Sometimes that means, you know, reigning in the EPA. Um, we need you to be playing heads up baseball and paying attention to what the industry is telling you as far as what we need. 
that's really where we need to be focused right now. It's coming into this e-commerce is building out those advocates, educating them, and quite frankly, leaning on the folks that are pros that have been there, the Jim Costas of the world, the Jimmy Panettas of the world, Kevin McCarthy's of the world, that, that really know and support this industry and, and are real true allies of this industry, making sure that they're on with the information to, to be the best members they can be up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, thanks for providing all that background on how much it takes, um, even just you and Kirk texting to create these relationships with the people who have been championing our issues and supporting NCBA on Capitol Hill. Since the last election, the Biden administration, as unfortunately, as you know, and everyone listening knows, made reversals and revised rules and policies that NCBA worked super hard on and we were all excited about. Is there some hope that after this election, maybe some of that might change and offer some relief to all those um, changes, or is that yet to be seen? The most important tool Republicans are going to resume control of after the midterm elections, if they were to take control, is the first choice. That that gives them a tremendous amount of ability to conduct real oversight of how the administration is proceeding on rulemakings. That is no small tool. It's something we need to be really sure we're paying attention to because um, it has a tremendous amount of power. And educating members, whether they be you know supportive Democrats or or Republicans who are just looking to stick it to the administration because it's the opposite party, helping them to understand where there's opportunity to defund things that don't make sense, where where there's opportunity to to offer legislation that, that can correct you know loopholes that the administration is maybe taking advantage of through the rulemaking process. We're at a really interesting point because we're watching the Supreme Court that during the Trump administration was transitioned aggressively to the conservative side. Everyone in California, most of the West remembers the Ninth Circuit being kind of this terrifying, uh, you know, appellate court for any of our Western issues. We, we've really seen that change. We've seen some really positive decisions out of the Ninth Circuit. Now, the, the 10th and the 5th, and there's some others that are giving us problems now that, that weren't maybe as much before, um, but it shows the power of, of, of those, those new judges moving into place. And we're seeing the same thing at the Supreme Court level, where you have a Supreme Court that is, that is making it very clear that they have a really close eye on just how far the administration can go in crafting regulations outside of the specific intent of Congress when they pass legislation. So Congress passes the bill, Right. They create a new they, they create a new piece of legislation. They pass it. The president signs it. It goes to the agencies where they create regulations to implement it. What we've seen for years and every single rancher in the country with a federal grazing permit knows this uh, better than better than I do or you do or anybody else. Right. They make up whatever they want to make up uh, as they go along. After that, the Supreme Court in its current form has said we are not going to do that anymore if it's not specifically enumerated in what was passed by Congress, then you have very, very, very narrow flexibility as far as where you can go with that. That is a tremendously important development that we, we hope we're going to see more of from the Supreme Court in this fall session, whether it be uh, you know, the, the, the Sackett case, the, uh, the, the Waters of the U.S. case that we're paying so much attention to, or the Prop 12 case um, having to do with the with, uh, gestation price in, in California for, for, for swine. That that alone sets a really important dynamic, and it's going to be important for Congress to pay attention to that 
holding the administration's feet to the fire from the other side of the equation. You've got the judicial on one side that's saying, nope, you've gone too far. You've got the congressional side that should also be looking at the processes and saying, we're watching how uh, how you implement that and we're controlling the first squares on implementation first rates as well. So, so ideally, they're going to be conducting that oversight in a real effective way. I think the concern is in, in a new Congress like this in a wave election, the impulse is to go too far, right? You know, months of oversight hearings into Hunter Biden, uh, months of oversight hearings into things that don't really do anything to help us in the cattle industry. They might feel good. Yeah. They might score some political points. But at the end of the day, um, it, they're, they're not necessarily substantive as far as what we need from Congress. So it's going to be really important that we say, look, keep your focus, you know, get back on track. Let's make sure we're focusing on the important stuff. Have your hearing on Hunter Biden too, but let's make sure you're doing the hard work of, of, of keeping keeping government out of our business and allowing our businesses to, to move in the right direction. Yeah, as you mentioned, next year is a farm bill year. So I'm sure that is going to be top priority for everyone in agriculture in D.C., uh, NCBA set their priorities back at the summer meeting. Supporting disaster recovery programs for drought and probably risk management are two in the West that are at the top of producers' lists. Is the Farm Bill a concern for you guys? Getting it done and getting it done how you want yeah. it? Yeah, it, it is. And and it's that fiscal, fiscal discipline kind of tone that I was talking about earlier. Sure. Um, coming back into Congress now. There are a lot of members who, or at least there are a lot of candidates, I should say, who are who are going to be newly minted members of Congress who have told us flat out, "I'm not voting for a farm bill." I mean, we're farm state members. These aren't these aren't urban members, you know, that don't that aren't impacted by it. These are these are folks from ag country. They're just straight they're up saying, not voting for a farm bill. We're just we're just not voting for it. It's 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 wasteful. We don't think that it's a good use of money, and and so you just need to know right out of the gate, I'm not going to vote for a farm bill. And I've had that. I've had uh, at least three conversations like that with incoming members um, that I can think of off the top of my head where they were declared it without it. And you know, it's really important for I think ag policymakers to understand that is the. That is the dynamic we're looking at. You know, we saw the the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act passed this summer, and in that bill, you had tens of billions of dollars of money uh, passed and spent on conservation programs that would otherwise be farm bill programs. And Chairwoman Debbie Savin, out of that committee, came out uh, after that was passed, and she made a comment publicly and said, "You know, this is really good because it's going to give us some some breathing room to get a farm bill done." Well, nothing, in my opinion, could be further from the truth because you have a bill that's sneaking up on now a trillion dollars. Because think about it, inflation impacts the farm bill just like it impacts every other spending process. Sure. So all of that SNAP funding is not going as far as it was when we passed that bill last time. All the disaster relief money, not going as far. All the conservation dollars, not going as far. Nothing is nothing is getting is buying as much as it was intended to buy when that bill was passed a few years ago. So we're going to have to contemplate a higher number simply to maintain the same level of service. When you think about what that means for some of the risk management programs and you know, some of the programs that the producers are going to rely on, um, that's a really big problem. It's it's going to force us to make some really hard choices in in, in making sure that you know things like the FMD vaccine bank are funded, the risk management programs are funded, that, that conservation programs are funded. We're only dealing with like 20% of that bill. 80% of it is is nutrition assistance and is welfare, and as such, it's it's really going to be difficult to make that case to some of these members that are coming in saying, I'm not voting for it, period. I don't care what's in it. 
I'm just not supportive of a trillion dollars in federal spending on ag policy and nutrition policy. That is that is going to be a really difficult pill to climb. G.T. Thompson, the incoming presumptive chairman of the Ag Committee from Pennsylvania, is taking a really sober approach to it. He's he's starting out with some some really aggressive hearings in January, and he's he's planning to push on through the year and really move towards voting in a bill by the fall of 2023. We're going to have to work really hard to make sure that that bill is devoid of bad policy, right? We sure. don't want a livestock title. We don't need we don't need them diving into some of these other issues. Um, we need them to block and tackle on farm bill policy priorities, period. And then we're going to have to defend it. And we're going to have to talk to a lot of these members that are that are sort of not in the mindset of voting for this kind of bill um, and helping to explain to them that this is the best opportunity to get something done and get off the field. So the cattle industry is in a different spot than, than a lot of agriculture. We're not like some of the rural crops. Um, we don't have a tremendous um, support system to defend. As a lobbyist for the industry, that's a good thing. You know, it allows me to use political capital to to ask for the federal government to be kept out of our business, right? Rather than using all that political capital simply to keep the checks coming in. Sure. Um, and and there's no judgment there in other segments of agriculture. It's just the reality. We look at the farm and the cattle industry differently than other parts of agriculture. Nevertheless. Once we get to a point where there's a bill that's saleable that doesn't have scary stuff in it, we want to get it passed quickly and get off the field. So that's really going to be the lift is, is educating that, you know, there's going to come a point here where we're going to come to you and we're going to ask you to work for a farm bill. And, and you know, we're hopeful that you're going to listen when we do that. Well, this episode does come out on Halloween, so I guess there's a scary part. <laughs> if you miss the beginning, yeah, go right back to here. it. Because <laughs> we talked about it's how right everyone wants beef. So that was the positive. <laughs> no, all of this should be positive. There's a lot of opportunity. But, you know, we, look, we always have a challenge ahead of us. We are a tiny segment of the population that's having a massive impact on how people go through their daily lives and how they nourish themselves. And, and so, it, you know, it's, it's always going to be a little bit of a daunting task. But we have a lot of influence in Washington. Our members across the country have great relationships with members of Congress. We have a lot of people's ear. It's not all bad news. But we don't get to take a pass on advocating and educating these members every chance we get about what we need and what we don't need um, from these federal processes. Definitely. And I know your team and Allison and everyone there is up for the challenge. Your stuff in D.C. is great. So with that, I think if you don't know much about NCBA, visit policy.ncba.org to learn more about their issues. Consider going to New Orleans this coming February to meet their staff and hear more of the things they're doing. Um, And yeah, Ethan, thanks so much for all your time today. You bet. Great talking to you. Yeah, great to chat with you too. Um, Have a safe flight home and maybe catch up on some sleep. That's my goal. That's my goal. I'm uh, I'm ready for some. All right. We'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, Ethan. Hey, thanks for listening to Sorting Pin, the California Cattlemen podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode with NCBA's Ethan Lane. If you want to hear more from NCBA, Go listen to Season 2, Episode 17, where I talked with NCBA's Environmental Counsel, Mary Thomas Hart, about the West Virginia versus EPA decision. Be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't yet registered for convention, go ahead and do that at our website at calcattleman.org events. Before November 18th, that's when prices go up. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.